we're going to approach this a bit more broadly um, by looking into the overall themes of light and darkness. Um, but we'll progress into how Jesus fits this theme as the light of the world a bit later. So on, on the day of our baptisms, we committed to dedicating our lives, as Paul describes it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, to fighting the good fight of faith. Paul uses this language to depict our lives in the faith as a continual daily fight. Some of Paul's final words in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, Paul says of himself that his fight is over, that he's kept the faith. Now, Paul explains the fight that he faces in Romans 7, verse 7, in his, his tongue twister of a dialogue. Let's take a look through how Paul describes this. So Romans 7, <clears throat> um, I think it's actually verse 18 through to verse 23. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do what, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul explains the fight that we go through every day with the flesh, that even though he wanted to do good, he kept finding himself doing those things that he shouldn't. He highlights this great contrast between the good fight and the evil. And another way he describes this fight is the contract, the, sorry, the comparison between light and darkness. So come with me to Ephesians 5, verse 7 through to 11. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So the themes of light and darkness parallel with the concept of good and evil. And both of these themes are woven all the way throughout scripture, all the way from the beginning when darkness is upon the face of the deep and the creator echoes those words, let there be light. We see a contrast between the darkness of the world and the light of the righteousness of God, all the way to the end where we get a vision of new Jerusalem without need of the sun because it's lit by the righteousness and glory of God, displayed by Christ, and there is no darkness anymore. So the inspiration for this talk comes from my early, early morning trips to work where 90% of the year, the sun would rise during my journey and I'd be blinded by the sun coming up over the horizon in front of me. And it really got me thinking um, when I was reading verses in scripture, like the sun of righteousness shall arise. So come with me to the beginning in Genesis 1. And this is where we set the scene and it's, it's the creation. The Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 
Please bear with me for one second. Genesis 1 verse 14 through to 18. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. <clears throat> so we're told that these lights in the firmament are placed there for signs. Um, as well as seasons, days and years. And, and the last three of those are quite obvious to us. You, you can see the seasons by the arc of the sun in the sky, uh, the length of the day and also the temperature. Um, interestingly, the Earth is closest to the sun in January and furthest away in July. So the temperature change for us is actually uh, in this country is to do more with the tilt of the planet. Um, but but what, what about the signs? What does it mean about the, the lights being signs? So Strong's defines the Hebrew word um, as a flag or a beacon or, or an omen. It's something you can view and derive some meaning from it. So come forward to Genesis 9, verse 12 through to 16. So after the flood, God made a covenant with all living creatures on the earth that he will, bring, he will never bring a flood again to destroy all flesh. As we read through this, note the use of the word token. And this is the same word that's in Genesis 1 about the sun. So... And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So we see that the purpose of this token or sign is for us and God to look at and remember the covenant that it represents. So whenever we see a rainbow, our minds go straight back to Noah and the flood. But what do our minds go back to when we see a sunrise? Quite rightly, we might think about its beauty and creation, but do we have that same automatic reaction of thinking about its meaning? So my goal tonight is to try to reinforce this symbol. So when we see a sunrise, we have a daily reminder of the hope that we have. In the same way, the Jews had the edges of their robes, the phylacteries, and all of these physical symbols that remind them of their hope. <coughs> So as a quick aside um, and, a, and a very gentle warning, this phrase Genesis in Genesis 1 um, can be taken too far. So many might remember back in 2013, 20, 2012, um, there was a theory around the blood moons that circulated and that was heavily reliant on this, this verse in Genesis and this phrase, the sign. Um, this evening, we want to focus on how scripture uses the signs. And the theory of the blood moons is a great example of what happens when you take a very specific verse in scripture and instead of interpreting it with the context within scripture, 
and you step outside of scripture and try, try to interpret that verse with external sources. Um, so very briefly, the two blood moons, the, the blood moons, two Christian pastors in America, um, Mark Biltz, John Hagee took the phrase from Joel, uh, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh. And they proposed a theory that this was talking about solar and lunar eclipses as the moon goes a shade of red. They looked back through the history of these eclipses and drew a correlation between some major Jewish historical events and what they call a tetrarch of eclipses. So that's four eclipses within a two-year period that align with, a, with Jewish, Jewish feasts. And they claim that Christ would return or a big event would happen to Israel in 2013 to 2015 because of this tetrarch of eclipses over the, those years. Um, so just a few points as to, to, to why this doesn't work. The, the event in Joel goes along with a major earthquake and the stars being darkened as well. This doesn't fit with, the, with an eclipse. Um, two of the six tetrarchs they, they identified don't align with any major event in Jewish history. Um, they're just ignored by the writers. Uh, and also all the timings are off. So the three that they align, um, the, well, the first is the Spanish Inquisition, uh, which is actually 15 years out. Um, the second is the 1948 Declaration of Independence, um, which is a year uh, out. And the very last one was the Six Day War, which was the closest of all of them, but it was still out by 10 months. So if you do ever see this circulating again in future, just be cautious of it. It, it sounds like a really fascinating finding, but it doesn't stand up when you look into it a bit deeper. So let's focus on scripture tonight. So, so the sun as the sign, the sun is the greatest of the lights. Um, it's the greatest source of light in our solar system. So it's not surprising that God is likened to the sun in Psalms 84 verse 11, um, quoting for the Lord God is a sun and shield. Following on from this, in, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, you have Yahweh being described as the greatest source of light, so great that no man can approach unto it. So who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. This really demonstrates the extent of God's power. God is described as light, as a concept. Light is unbounded. It can't be quantified. You, you can't put a measure on it. We also see in scripture God's power or his character being likened to fire, um, not in a measurable way, but, but more to do with its attributes. Um, so step through a few of these. So Exodus 3, verse 2 to 3. Um, the angel of Yahweh appears to Moses out of a burning bush. And then when Moses goes up into the mountain for 40 days, when he's given the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, uh, it says that he spoke these commandments from the midst of a fire. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 verse 12 continues to explain that they, they only heard God out of the midst of the fire on that occasion, um, and they didn't see any form or image. And the inspired writer here is pointing out that they hadn't seen the image of God on purpose and uses that to explain why the people shouldn't create any form for God or idols to worship or anything depicting God. Um, that's just the context of that verse, that the bit that we're interested in is verse 20, where Moses likens the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt as them being brought out of the iron furnace. 
And then in verse 24, Moses goes on to describe God as a consuming fire. Exodus 13 verse 21 explains that uh, about the pillar of fire and um, that the children of Israel followed through the wilderness by day um, and the, uh, or the pillar of cloud and then the pillar turned into fire at night and it was a guide to them, uh, a light to show the way. So let's bring all of this together in Romans 11 verse 22. It's describing our Heavenly Father's character and it shows us that there's two parts, the, the goodness and the severity. And I think that's why God works through the fire so often. So Romans 11 verse 22. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. <clears throat> so fire has two extreme characteristics. It's life-giving and it's destructive. It can give warmth and show us the right way, um, like the pillar of fire in the wilderness, but that same fire can be consuming. So let's consider a type in Genesis, and we'll get back onto the topic in a minute, but this is this is it's fascinating. I can't skip over this. So Genesis is a book of types from cover to cover. And to be emphatically clear, that doesn't mean that the events didn't literally happen. They did. It's a historical record. But each of the events that we see throughout Genesis can show us a type of a future event. So you have Cain and Abel, the killing of a type of Christ. You've got Noah and the archetype of the ecclesia of God taken out of the world and delivered into a new creation. There's Abraham, who goes to rescue Lot from the kings at war, returning to Melchizedek, the kingdom priest, with lots of links to Armageddon. And it's just cherry picking a few of the examples. But the one I want to show you is when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, this is a very clear type of our Lord Jesus Christ being sacrificed. And you have Isaac as the type of Christ and Abraham being a type of God willingly guiding his son to be sacrificed for us. So come with me to Genesis 22, verse 6. <clears throat> Genesis 22, verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon his son. And he, Abraham, took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together. So how fitting is it that scripture gives us this tiny detail here that Abraham, who is depicting God in this type, is the one who is holding the fire. They've risen early in the morning. They've, they've, they'll have been traveling through the darkness with this fire to guide them and to give them warmth. But it was also to be used to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. It's a real demonstration of the goodness and the severity of God's character. <clears throat> So we began looking at the fight between good and evil and the use of light and darkness in scripture. There's two more elements that tie in with this, the, these same comparisons. And that's the contrast between being fruitful and unfruitful and also the presence of God's glory and the lack of God's glory. Let's go back and reread Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 5 um, verse 11. So therefore do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern that what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So this concept of being fruitful or unfruitful is something we're all familiar with. It's, it's a theme that Christ uses throughout his parables. One example being the husbandman that didn't provide the fruit of the vineyard. Uh, it's also used by Paul in the fruits of the spirit. It's the outworking of God's glory or his character in action. So with all of this context, I want to turn our focus to Jesus. So let's take a look at Malachi 2 verse 4 which is where our reading was from. <coughs> so Malachi 2 verse 4, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stool. Now this is a prophecy talking about Christ. The chapter is all about a great judgment by fire, pulling on the goodness and severity of God's character again. Severity to the proud and the wicked through, the, through a judgment of fire, but goodness towards those that fear the name of Yahweh through healing in the wings of the son of righteousness. The Hebrew word for wings here sounds a bit strange being used with the context of the sun. Uh, the sun doesn't have wings, so there's a bit more to it. And if, <coughs> if you look a bit more into the word, you find it's translated as skirt elsewhere referring to the corner or the flap of a skirt. It's used in this way in Ruth. So Ruth chapter three, verse nine. Uh, Ruth three, verse nine. And he said, who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And it's that word skirt. And if we go back to the law, Deuteronomy 22, verse 12, Thou shalt make thee fringes upon the four quarters of thy, thy vesture, wherewith thou coverest thyself. And again, that word for wings is the same word translated here as quarters of thy vesture. So this is part of the law. And if you've ever been to Israel, more so in Jerusalem, you'll see the Jews wearing prayer shawls with, with tassels on each of the corners. The shawls are called talit uh, and the fringes or the or the tassels are called zit-zit. Uh, uh, they're braided with strings of blue because of, um, uh, of instruction in, in Numbers 15, uh, verse 38 to 39. So speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations, that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. Um, so... I want to show you a partial fulfillment of this prophecy um, in Malachi, and it's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 through to 22. <coughs> so in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, and behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. So a woman approaches Jesus, who has an issue of blood, and touches the hem of his garment. 
This is the same hem that the law in Deuteronomy and Numbers was talking about. It's the tassel on the corner of the garment. So this woman, knowing about the Malachi prophecy, presumed Jesus to be the son of righteousness and sought out the healing in the tassels of, the, of his garment. And she was healed because of her faith in that prophecy. So I don't believe that Malachi was fully fulfilled in Christ's return, in, in Christ's life, sorry, because of the extreme references to judgment by fire being used in the rest of the verses. So the timing doesn't fit with AD 70, and AD 70 didn't see a widespread burning of Jerusalem, uh, just the burning of the temple, which wasn't meant to happen. So Josephus talks about the troops enter, enter, uh, attempting to put the fire out in the inner court of the temple, uh, but failing to do so. So it wasn't their intention to burn it. And that style of language fits better with the prophecies of Armageddon and Christ's return. But here in Matthew, we get this small confirmation through a partial fulfillment that Jesus is this son of righteousness that Malachi is prophesying about. <clears throat> so there's another reference where Christ refers to himself as the light of the world and this is where the title of our talk comes from that's John 8 verse 12 so John chapter 8 verse 12 then spake Jesus again unto them saying I am the light of the world he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life so Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world. And in the same way that the children of Israel followed the pillar of fire through the wilderness by night, which allowed them to physically not walk in darkness. When we choose to follow Jesus, his teachings and his example of perfectly reflecting the goodness of God's character, we can also obtain life. Jesus continues this idea in Matthew 5 verse 14 through to 16 says, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So in the same way that Jesus reflected the light or glory of God, he calls us to do the same thing, to be lights to those around us. And it shows us that the evidence of shining light is in our good works. When we hear this phrase works, my mind often goes to those great acts of faithfulness in, faith, faithfulness in Hebrews 11. But most of the time that light is shown in the little things. It's shown it's, it's showing kindness to people who are hurting. It's feeding those that are hungry. It's showing mercy and forgiveness to those that upset us. It's wanting to preach the word to tell those around, around us about the great hope of the gospel, that they might be able to have a part in it too. It's the absence of all those actions of darkness that scripture teaches about in many different ways. And it's all those things and many others that those around us at work, at school, at university, or even out the shops can see the light of the glory of God's character in us. Think about the Levites. So the Levites were not given a piece of land within the boundaries of Israel as their inheritance. Instead, the Levites were scattered throughout the land and were given various cities within 
the areas of other tribes. This is what the children of Israel were told in Numbers 35, verse 7 to 8. In all, you must give the Levites 48 towns together with their pasture lands. The towns you give the Levites from the land the Israelites possess are to be given in proportion to the inheritance of each tribe. Take many town from a tribe that has many, but few from the one that has few. The results of this would be that the Levites would be relatively evenly distributed around the land of Israel. And this was good because the role of the Levites was to be the part of Israel that works for God. In the wilderness, they were in charge of the tabernacle. In the land, we can assume that they were, they were there to teach and to encourage the rest of the people to serve Yahweh. And in many ways, we have a similar role today. God has not gathered all the believers into one big city. He spread us around the various cities and towns of the world so that we can shine God's light for others to see with the hope that they might also come to walk in the same light. So Matthew 13 verse 43 continues, then, then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hath, has ears, let him hear. So brothers and sisters, those that pursue this as their goal in this life, shining the light of the glory of God by God's grace will continue to do so in the kingdom. So we've looked at the way that Christ is prophesied to be like the sun in Malachi and also verses where Christ refers to himself as the light of the world. I want to remind you of something that happened at the crucifixion. So come to Luke chapter 23, verse 44. <coughs> so Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was about the sixth hour and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the spirit. So as Jesus was dying, the people around him were given this incredible symbol it was a demonstration of the words that Jesus had spoken of himself, that he was the light of the world. As he was taking his last breaths, that world became darkness. The sun set, leaving the world in its original form of darkness, in the same way that the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings in the future to bring the light back. Turn me to Revelation 21 and verse 23. And this is the vision of the kingdom to come that we spoke about at the start. Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the lamb is the light thereof. The symbol of Christ being the light of the world continues after he returns. We get this image of the lamb, Christ, who through displaying the glory of God is brighter than the sun and the moon and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. <coughs> so we've, we've already talked about the amount of types and symbols you find in Genesis. And one of those is with Sodom and Gomorrah. And this one is actually drawn and used by Christ in Luke 17 verse 28 through to 30. 
So Luke chapter 17, verse 28 through to 30. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So in the type of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have a remnant, uh, which is Lot and his family who are saved. And they're taken out of, out of the city, which is the world, before the judgment on the world happens. And this again is another outworking of the goodness and the severity of our Heavenly Father. To the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah, severity, they're destroyed by fire in the same language we read in Malachi. Yet his mercy and his goodness toward righteous Lot, who he rescues from Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed. <coughs> so I want to show you one more, but really fascinating detail in the record of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's slotted in right at the beginning of the record, as if just to provide some context. Um, to, fr to frame what's about to happen. Got me questioning whether that's really the case. So it's Genesis 19, verse 23. <coughs> <clears throat> the sun was risen on the earth when Lot entered into Zor. Then Yahweh rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So the sun was risen as Lot entered Zor. And it shows us the goodness of God's character. The sun of righteousness arising with healing in his wings, saving Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah and sparing them from that judgment. Followed directly after by the severity of the judgment of God in the fire. Um, and just compare the phrasing in verse 28, Genesis 19, verse 28. Uh, Abraham looks out over the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's as the smoke of a furnace. Just remember the, the words in Malachi 4, verse 1. The day cometh that shall burn as an oven. <coughs> so isn't it fascinating that as early as Genesis chapter 19, we get this image looking forward all the way to the return of Christ. And for me, that's one of the biggest witnesses of the inspiration of scripture. And it's that image of the son of righteousness that I want to leave you with. That future outworking of Jesus as the light of the world. So I mentioned earlier that my goal tonight is to give you something to think about the next time you see a sunrise. In the same way that we think back to the covenant that God made after the flood, uh, when we see a rainbow, we think of that. So think back to the proverb, where there is no vision, the people perish. Um, I want to share with you as, as closing words, my vision when I see a sunrise looking forward to the return of Christ. So word of caution that 
there are some details in here that can't be backed up by scripture. Um, it's poetic license because we don't have a great deal of detail about this specific event. It's inevitable that we'll add some small inconsequential details to, to our vision. Um, but please don't allow that to take away from this. <clears throat> so I want you to imagine with me that we're in Jerusalem. And the northern invader has swept through the land and is attacking Jerusalem. They've breached the outer wall of the city and they're fighting the remaining resistance on the eastern side of the city. Two thirds of the city has fallen. The Jews are slowly losing hope under the overwhelming power of the northern invader. The battle that can't be won, but they're fighting for their city and for their lives. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. The northern invader is creeping through the city, engulfing it with its darkness. But then both sides of the flow in the sky from the east, the sky slowly getting brighter as if the sun is rising in the middle of the night. And the first signs of dawn are displayed in the sky above the city. The northern invader pauses from their conquest as both sides of the fight focus on the light coming from the east. They set their eyes on the Mount of Olives as the light becomes brighter and brighter. And then the source of the light appears over the brow of the hill. As bright as the sun's light is Jesus Christ and his saints. Thank you. Thank you.